Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast, where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Storenagel. I was thinking this week a lot about the word belonging. Belonging. Belonging is an interesting word. Belonging, to belong. I think it's an interesting word because it can refer to things and it can imply possession of things, right? So this, this shirt belongs to me, right? This, this Bible belongs to me. This phone belongs to me. And that's one way in which we, we use that word. Probably one of the most common ways. But belonging can also refer to people. And it can imply meaningful relationships and uh, even mutual commitment. So to the lost kid in the schoolyard, you might ask, which class do you belong to? Are you in 1A, 2A, or whatever, you know? Uh, we might say that we belong to this family or to that family or that we belong to this or that church or I belong to the society of mushroom collectors. I don't know. A couple in love might say that they belong together. And examples are that I gave just now, they're fairly simple, but I think even these simple Examples, they betray the complexity and how tricky this whole notion of belonging can be. Because a thing, like an object, after all, it can't willingly commit itself to someone to whom it belongs. That belonging of the object, it is, it is socially ascribed. Right? So, this shirt is understood to belong to me because there is a, a social consensus that in this case is even enshrined in the legal system that because I paid for it with our common agreed currency, it now belongs to me to be used under my discretion. Right? But things get a bit more complicated. The Bible, right? The Bible as an object this particular printed Bible that I have here, it belongs to me as an object. But who does the content belong to? Not, not the ink on the paper, but, but the words, the ideas, the concepts, the metaphors, the traditions, the memories that the ink registers in this specific paper that I have in my hand. Who does that belong to? This phone belongs to me, but we all know how tricky it is to define ownership over the data that this phone stores and has access to. Do my personal details, my tastes, my preferences, do they belong to me alone? Or do they also belong to Meta, to Google and Microsoft and the Norwegian government and the bank that in practice owns my apartment much more than I do? Now people, are not the same as things. I hope we can agree on that. 
A person has simultaneously a voice to express belonging, but also has a social context that can assert, can deny, or can even enforce in alternative belonging. If the belonging of things is complicated enough, the belonging of people is the stuff of wars as well as love stories. It's the stuff of hatred and affection, of exclusion and embrace. Today we continue the story of Ruth. Is it, is it Ruth the story belongs to? It carries her name in any case, but it's also the story of of Naomi, it is the story of Boaz, it is the story of, of those who died, the story of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion, it's the story of those who are born, it is the story of Obed, and it is the story of David, and of the people who told this story again and again in many times, and often in times in which this story needed to be told because it helped redefine belonging. But I, I, I digress, as I sometimes do. Today we continue the story of the book of Ruth. This is a little book in, in the Bible, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament part of, of our Christian Bibles, there between Judges and 1 Samuel. And if you want a full overview or a sort of a bird's eye rush through the book of Ruth, you can, uh, you can check the podcast from last week where I sort of go through the whole story. But today we are on chapter two. Uh, Ruth and Naomi are in uh, the area of Bethlehem. Ruth and Naomi who are a Moabite widow and a Hebrew widow. And I'm not gonna go through the whole story of the book as I said before, but how did it end up here? Just a short story, right? Naomi was from Bethlehem, she was from Israel. But in a time of famine, Elimelech, who was the husband of Naomi, decided to leave. And he left for Moab. And Moab was a neighboring country, but Moab was also a country with historical enmities with Israel. It was the people you despise and the place you don't go to. That's where he goes. And we're not told why he goes to Moab. What's the extent of of the suffering or of the fear that drives him to go there. But he goes, takes Naomi with him and their two kids, Kilion and Malon. And they go to, to Moab, and when they're in Moab, Elimelech dies. Naomi stays, and her two kids marry two local women, Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. But eventually, these two also die. After 10 years, they also die. So Naomi is left alone with these two uh, daughters-in-law, all widows. And then Naomi hears that the famine in Israel is, is gone and now there's, there's food again. So she decides to go back and she sets on her road with Ruth and with Orpah, uh, but at some point she stops and she says, what are you doing? Don't come with me. You have no place in Israel. 
Go back to your families. This is your country. Find yourself new husbands. Go build a new life. I have nothing left. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to help you with. I have no guarantees. I have no right to land when I, when I go back because I don't have a husband anymore. This is the ancient Near East. Woman can't own land. Go back. They have a back and forth there in discussion. Orpa decides that this is good advice. And it's logical, reasonably good advice, actually. So Orpa leaves. Ruth doesn't. Ruth clings to Naomi and says, no, I'm going with you. No matter what. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Let nothing but death separate us. And death is what they have expecting for them as far as they can see. But they go. They go together and they arrive back at Bethlehem. And people say, is this Naomi? The Naomi who left 10, 15 years ago. And Naomi says, don't call me that. Don't call me Naomi. Because Naomi, her name means pleasant. She says, call me Mara. That means bitter. Because that's what life looks like right now. This is where we find Ruth and Naomi uh, in the beginning of chapter 2. Two widows, one of them a foreigner, not just a foreigner, a Moabite. A foreigner from the hated land. <laughs> and uh, they're poor. They're destitute. They have no social security. They have no family. And they have a lot of loss and sorrow in their hearts and their stories. That's where chapter 2 finds us. And this is how the story goes from chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. I want to make a pause there, because gleaning is not a word we use in our everyday lives. <laughs> uh, gleaning was a tradition in ancient Israel that involved a law that told that they could, were not allowed to harvest the, to, the harvest, to harvest the fields to the full extent. So when you harvest, some grains will fall, some sheaves will be left behind, and the, and the law was you leave those for the poor, for the orphan, for those who can't. Uh, who don't have a living, to come after you and collect what falls behind so they have something to eat. And that's called gleaning. Okay? So, so she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does the young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. 
Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men to not lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed with, down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an epa, which is quite a lot. It's not a measure we use now, but it's about 20, 30 liters or something, so it's a significant amount of grain. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, the man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Who does that young woman belong to? Who does that young woman belong to? What did Boaz imply with that question? It's an unusual question maybe for our days, but not that unusual at the time, but what was he implying? What was he trying to find out about Ruth? Was he asking for her family belonging? That would be a reasonable question in the context. Everybody belongs to kin, and that's where they're placed in society, especially an ancient society like the Israelite one at the time? Or was he wondering if she might be in some kind of bondage? In a world in which slavery in many forms was commonplace, it was also a reasonable thing to wonder. Does she belong to someone, like a slave to a master? 
Or maybe he was inquiring her civil status. Is she married? In a world in which married women were understood to belong to their husbands and single women as belonging to their fathers. Who does she belong to? Now we, we can't, of course, know for certain what Boaz wanted with this question. The fact that he later reveals that he had already heard much about Ruth just adds more questions. It doesn't really give any, us any answer. Was he looking for Ruth, maybe specifically? We don't really know. But we do get a sense of all the issues of belonging that are at play here. Right? Issues of identity that are not so subtly, so subtly exposed by the overseer's double marker as he, he answers she is the Moabite from Moab, right? And I mentioned last week how it's interesting how Ruth was Ruth until she emigrates with Naomi, and now she is Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. And here she is Ruth the Moabite from Moab. She is the foreigner that is not from here. The other that is from over there and not from here. The one who doesn't belong. And not belonging was a dangerous thing. Not belonging was a dangerous thing. She belonged to the wrong land, to the wrong people, to the wrong country, and she had no land here that belonged to her. Therefore, she had and was nothing. She belonged to no husband or father here. And because of that, even the belonging of her own body was at stake. We, we don't need much. We don't need to read much between the lines to understand when Boaz orders his men not to bother and not to touch her. It's a dangerous world. It's a dangerous place for a woman who belongs to no one and has no rights to belong to herself to be gleaning the corners of a field into the night. There are other issues of belonging, right? When you're hungry, who does your hunger belong to? Is it yours alone? To whom does that woman belong? To whom does the grain belong? To whom does the right to glean belong? Is it to all poor people or to the right kind of poor people? Is it to all foreigners or shall we make some cuts? And we saw last week from a text in Deuteronomy how there were very specific cuts for Moabites. Who does the grain belong to? Shall we let a Moabite eat our grain? And to whom does the right of asking questions and the duty of answering them belong? Boaz walks into the field and he owns it. It belongs to him and everything there is under his control. And he asks her and she bows down and answers to whom does your dignity belong? Your voice, your right of speech. These are questions of belonging and they are questions of power. 
And we know them, right? There are questions of uh, survival, and there are questions of ethics, and there are questions of compassion. They are also, if we dare to read the scriptures with such ears to hear, they are questions of faith. Because how we understand and deal with these notions of belonging goes through what we believe about things and about ourselves. So how do we answer the challenge of these questions? And I talked last week about one text in Deuteronomy that is a hard to swallow one because it, it speaks about not forgiving the Moabites for ten, up to 10 generations because they weren't generous and therefore there's no place for them. You exclude them at all costs. But now I want to read another text, also from Deuteronomy, that has a counter-narrative. It has a different story that speaks into these issues of, of belonging and of faith and identity. And it's very close, ironically enough, to the other text we read from Deuteronomy. It's, also in, cha it's in chapter 24 also, but from verse 17 to 22. And there it says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This is where gleaning, the custom of gleaning comes from. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. Here we find the legal framework, the legal background for the practice of gleaning in ancient Israel. But there is much more here, isn't there, than a legal framework. There is the foundations of a faith that emerges and of practices and self-understandings that emerge in response to something, and they emerge in response to God's hesed. We spoke about that word last week because it's such a central book, such a central word in the book of Ruth. Hesed that we translate so often, or is translated so often in the scriptures as loving kindness. Loving kindness, and which in a vast majority of, of times is used to describe God. God's loving kindness. But in the book of Ruth, we find it also describing Ruth and describing Boaz. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt and God acted with loving kindness towards you and redeemed you and brought you out of slavery into freedom. Remember that you were hungry in the desert and God provided with food, with quail and manna. Remember, you were thirsty in the desert and God provided with water 
on the foundation of God's hesed. You will do these things and you will practice this way and you will think of yourself this way. I have a tendency these days to downplay Boaz. You may have noticed that a bit. And I have good reasons for doing that. I think very often when reading Ruth, Boaz has gotten the highlight because he operates as this garden redeemer, right? In the next chapter, we'll see how uh, he and Ruth get all chummy with each other and eventually they get married. And by marrying Ruth, he redeems Naomi and her standing and her lands and all of that. And that's a legal device called a garden redeemer, uh, which in, uh, in Christian tradition has often been used as an image for Christ, for what Christ does in terms of redeeming us. Um, the problem is this focus on Boaz very often undermines the real hard work that is done by Ruth and the real flipping of the system that Ruth does. And part of the problem with that is that Boaz is, in a sense, doing what he was supposed to do. He's a relative, she's a widow, she needs to be redeemed. Now true, there is another one that is closer in line and that has the right and the duty to redeem first. But what Boaz is doing is doing what he was expected to do if he would fulfill the law faithfully. And it's kind of a sad world, I think, when this guy gets a pass and glory for just doing what he was supposed to do, right? That's the sense in which I sometimes deconstruct Boaz, but it's not fair to Boaz, to be, to be honest. And this chapter is why it's not fair. Because here in chapter 2, Boaz truly shows himself in his rightful place of a kind and of a just person, because here he hasn't yet assumed the role of the garden redeemer. And he has no guarantees that this other guy is not going to redeem Ruth. So even if we consider that, if, if we do as we often do and put like a rom-com twist on, on Ruth and think that, that Boaz was necessarily infatuated with her because that gives better television, right? Uh, so we, even if we think about that, even if we think that, no, Boaz saw Ruth and he was like, yeah, I want to marry this Moabite woman. She's beautiful, she has character and all these things that we want to think, right? Even if he did that, he couldn't really go beyond waiting for this other guy to decide. So here, we do have the author of the story showing Boaz, showing Hesed. And why is that important? Because that is a reminder, that is an anchoring in this tradition in which Boaz is able to do what Deuteronomy 24 is calling the people of Israel to do. To not see those things that belong to him as belonging to him because of himself. He is able to act with kindness. And the author goes through great lengths to show Boaz as this kind spirit. The way he greets the workers and is greeted by them. The way he deals with the whole situation shows somebody who is willing to, within their role in society and their place of privilege, to not use that as an excuse for trampling over others. 
or for not acting with kindness or for acting with greed. Now, the sad part is that that wasn't expected, <laughs> right? That that becomes such an exception that we want to clap for Boaz. <laughs> But having said that, he does do that, right? He leans into that kindness and into his possibilities as a person of privilege in the society to use that privilege towards kindness, towards generosity, towards justice. And my God, that is needed, isn't it? Boaz and Ruth are together counter-narratives of hesed, of loving kindness in the middle of the power struggles that circle around belonging and everything that it implies in this story. Ruth goes beyond her duty and what could be expected beyond the fears. She's breaking barriers to care for this widow that her own people at this time is not caring for. And she exposes her own body to risk in order to provide for this woman. And she shows such loving kindness to Naomi that the people around have to notice And even all the mountains of prejudice that they have built over years against Moabites can't withstand the power of Ruth's kindness. And Boaz is willing to not just sit in his privilege, but to actually act from it towards kindness and generosity. All these forms, right? This loving kindness of both Boaz and Ruth, they break through in the story. And when that happens, we recognize God's movement. I mentioned before how Ruth is interesting also in that sense. It's not a, a book in which God is mentioned very much. And God is not mentioned as an actor. You don't have like God did this, God did that, or that kind of thing. So we are invited to understand God's movement through these things, right? Through how they're anchored. And here we see God's movement in these forms of loving kindness. In not being afraid of moving in both privilege and, and in shared lack for kindness and grace. And the common denominator, if you want to ask them, is recognizing that the source of abundance or the cause of grief is, is beyond ourselves, right? Right? but especially that the possibilities of life are not ours to own, but are ours to share. The common denominator, if you want to simplify it that way, is recognizing God as the source of abundance. We see that in Boaz when he says she's in his fields, right? She's gleaning his grain. But he says, may the Lord bless you under whose wings you came to take refuge. So he recognizes the meeting of this widow's hunger with his grain as God's providence for her. Which means he ultimately understands that it's not his. Especially not if being his would be withholding from those who are also built in the image of God 
also created in the image of God. They both recognize God as the source of abundance, and because of that, nothing is ultimately theirs in that sense. Now, if you're uncomfortable with that theism, I don't know where you are. Maybe you walked into this church here because your friend dragged you or because you felt you should, but you're just not there. Like, this whole thing with God is just weird, and you're still wrapping your head around that. I think you can still join in on the kindness. just want to say that to begin with. We can still join in on the kindness by simply acknowledging nature as the giver and rightful owner of all the things that we deem as being ours. But for us, from a Christian perspective, we believe that behind the abundance of life and resources in the world, there is an abundance of love and grace that we recognize in the divine we call God. We believe that the abundance flows from the abundance of God. And we believe that because of how we have understood God's revelation in nature and history and because of how we understand his self-revelation also in Jesus Christ. And this Christ whom we recognize as the revelation of this God is a Christ who comes and breaks bread to thousands with a very little. Right? Is, is, the, is the Christ who gives the Sermon on the Mount, who says, don't cling to these things as if they were yours. Like, look at the fields. Look at generosity. Share a second mile. And who says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, love your enemies. You've heard it said, it's not just you heard the rumors, it's there in the law. But I'm telling you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Yes, even if they're Moabite. That is incarnate hesed. And the hope that an incarnate tradition of hesed offers is a survival line for many. Naomi's hope in this story is, and Naomi is a hinge, right? It is through Naomi that Ruth becomes family, that is connected, and we have this language, right? But Naomi's hope is connected to the loving kindness that is being expressed by both Boaz and Ruth. And in this story we see um, Ruth, there's a language around her changing from Ruth the Moabite, and that language is in contrast to Boaz calling her daughter, which is a familiarity, a kinship word, used on a foreigner, and Naomi calling her daughter-in-law, and saying things like, this Boaz is our relative. Not my relative, our relative, our redeemer. And Naomi allows herself to be with Ruth and Ruth to be with her in all of this. I think you know where this goes for us, don't we? As much as we've been talking about ancient widows in the ancient world, in an agricultural culture, as much as we've been talking about all of that, 
I'm sure we've all known all along as I've been speaking that this is also about us. Even as we spoke about the Moabite, maybe we had other adjectives floating in our heads. Maybe we've been on the butt end of that, right? We've been the foreigner. We've been the excluded. We've been the one who is from there and not here. Or maybe we've been the one pointing fingers and building walls. Maybe we've been the one denying the grain from the poor. Maybe we've been the one thinking that what we have is really ours. Or maybe we've been the one who suddenly felt that what we have is just not enough. And who owns our hunger and our pain and our suffering? Or our loneliness? Or our exclusion? And to us also today, I think Ruth is generous with her story. Which is why it has been told so long and so many times. And we also can take this call to live in kindness where we find ourselves. And this is where Ruth and Boaz are a wonderful couple, right? Before Ruth gets into the privileged position. But here where we can see ourselves in either. And maybe, maybe you're in the position of privilege because of where you were born, because of what you inherited, because of the kind of access you had, because of the kind of nationality you have. Maybe you're in the place of privilege. You're the one who walks into the field and the field is yours and the grain is yours. How do you move into that field and towards the people in it, the people harvesting and the people gleaning? How do you greet them? How do they greet you back? And with what kind of generosity and kindness do you hold that which you think is yours? And do you know that it really isn't? Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Remember, you were immigrants two generations back. Remember, you were poor before you found oil. Remember, you didn't have education until your grandpa worked hard to change. You know, remember. Remember you thought it was all yours until Christ swapped you off your feet and you thought, oh my God. Are you in that place? Then remember that kindness and that invitation. Or maybe you're in the other place. Maybe you're Ruth. You know, maybe you're the one struggling with uttering. Maybe you're the one who's being told you don't belong here. Maybe you're the one who, don't, who can't get a job because you have the wrong face and the wrong last name. Maybe you're the one who can't get an apartment because you're not white enough or you don't have the right kind of job. Maybe you're the one who made the wrong bet financially and now you can't make ends meet and what do you do? How do we meet each other in the place of need and allow ourselves to be loved and to love even in our struggle? And do we dare to believe together that God's generosity is enough? And I do believe, and I want to end with this, that we need to believe in it together. Because it is when we believe in it together that we, we change it, right? In a story of 
famine and lack and movement. It is in this togetherness that God provides. And that's how our tradition of faith has interpreted it. That's why we've been keeping on telling this story. That's why it's in our Bibles. With no prophecies, no divine revelations through priests and holy men and women, but God is there. How can we live it out that he is here also? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, towards the darkness that assails, the light that brings life, towards the days of struggle and the days of plenty that he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his loving kindness, and love the neighbor, love the world, and so serve the Lord joyfully. Amen. Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.